Ossert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the Ossert Podcast. Share today, save tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and this month I chat with Dr. Joseph Forrest. Joseph and I have been friends for close to 30 years, and our careers have taken quite interesting turns. Joseph's been teaching and studying in the fascinating field of strategic foresight. He has worked with governments across the world, helping them prepare for uncertain futures. It's a great discussion that delves into all sorts of different areas, including the curious use of the acronym DILIGAF. Then it's over to my co-host Beck, who chats with Ozzert's Mike Holm about the importance of community and how that can help us prepare for the unknown. Today I'm joined by Dr. Joseph Forrest. How are you doing today, Joe? Very well. That's good. Now, Joe and I go back a, a long time. I think we worked out it was about 1995. We worked together. Yeah, so coming, coming up to about 28 years. So we have this long, ongoing, in and out you know, thing where we've kind of crossed paths a number of times over the decades, but... So it's a lot of fun for us to actually get together and chat like this today. I'm going to start with a really obvious question, I guess, because you, you deal in, you, you try to tell the future or, you know, imagine a future. And you call yourself a futurist. Mm-hmm. And I know you, you taught a subject called strategic foresight. In fact, a degree around strategic foresight. Indeed. But what's a futurist? Like, is it, is, is it like crystal balls and, you know, reading of, of coffee beans or what? Let, tell us about what it is. Yeah. Early on, not so much these days, but it was always jokes about, you know, who's going to win the Melbourne Cup, who's going to win the grand final, what are the lottery numbers going to be? And so I typically have a, in a presentation slide, I typically have, you know, a fortune teller and I put a big red not symbol through it because it's not really about prediction and proper futurists are not really in the business of prediction. Arthur C. Clarke famously said that, it's impossible to predict the future and any attempt to do so in any detail appears ludicrous within a very few years. So it's not really about prediction, but you can think about the future as having two aspects. There's a part that you can't alter, we call that the future of fate, and there's a part that you can alter, the future of desire. So firstly, you've got to try and work out what part of the future do you need to adapt to and so methodologies for that are like scenarios. You know, this is sort of an evolutionary view. You know, you have to adapt to that which you can't alter. And there's that part that you can shape. And so you typically do visioning there. So there's, you know, a couple of different futures methodologies. But futurists in the business are trying to work out how the continuities of the past constrain the processes of change in the present. And specifically what futurists study is not the future, because the future doesn't exist. They study ideas about or images of the future, which is the, the jargon we use in the field. And that's, that's important because every action decision we make involves some assumption about the future. So futures research or future studies or strategic foresight, there's a variety of names there. They're not the same thing, but they're close enough for, for this discussion. The function of futures research or future studies is to make those assumptions explicit so that we can assess them and see whether they're likely to continue to hold and be valid over the time frame or the time horizon of the futures assessment we're trying to do. So, so, so the, we study images of the future because there's an image, this conditions an action in the present, the action has consequences that play out in the future, 
So it's a loosely coupled feedback loop between image, action, future. That's the best that you can do. Anyone who tells you otherwise, eh, I'd run away. So one of the challenges of that, I imagine, is imagination. Yes. Because we often hear and we see companies that can't see beyond the what they do now. And there are dozens of examples. There are, you know, we, we had all the things that happened at Xerox Park in the 70s. And Xerox walked away from arguably the really big thing and stuck to photocopiers when they actually had laser printers and GUIs and all sorts of things were invented at that, play, at that time in that place. And they didn't see the potential of what those things could do because you need some imagination to do that. And, you know, as Steve Jobs famously did throughout the latter part, particularly of his career at Apple, the second stage, which was being prepared to kill the babies. You know, the things that are successful today, being prepared to let them go in order to build the success of the future. And that's why we don't have an iPod today. And we still weep for the lost message pad of the time, you know, from back then, which I still have one that works in the cupboard. But there are a whole bunch of things where they, you've got to get rid of some of your assumptions. And the Apple Newton. Hold, the you... Newton. Well, the Newton operating system. Yes. But yeah, there's a whole bunch of things you've got to be able to do with that. And is, isn't that the hard part, one of the hardest parts for organisations is to actually say, what we do today may not be the thing that we can continue doing? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Xerox Park because when I went to Netscape for the first trip, which was early 1997, you know, you get, you get on a plane here at 10.30 on a Saturday morning, you fly all night and you arrive at 10 a.m., in Los Angeles, yes, you get there. Yeah, you get there two hours before you leave. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, now it's two hours because the planes are faster. But in those days, it was you know it was twenty five years ago, twenty six years ago. First thing I did when I got to to Silicon Valley after having spent a week at the the annual sales kickoff conference, which was bizarre. Hmm. I mean, they they'd rented a warehouse on the docks, and there were just like you know pinball machines and and like the whole. It, it's like you imagine. I can remember pinching myself, thinking I have to remember this. I worked for Netscape, O N G W T F. That was finished. Went down to Silicon Valley because I had to do some training. And, you know, I drove around and I went to Xerox Park hmm. because I thought, well, this is it. It's like it was the only place that looked like I imagined Silicon Valley would look. Everything else like industrial zone. But this was built into a mountainside with horses in the fields behind. And I thought, that's my picture. Hmm. That was my image of Silicon Valley. So the image that we have of the future is extraordinarily important and the way you get that is through imagination so you know as you, as you know i was a theoretical physicist first then i ended up in various internet related companies like the one that we met in all those years ago then got poached to another place and then finally i ended up at netscape einstein famously said imagination is more important than knowledge and that's a real quote that's from the Saturday Evening Post in 1929. So that's, you know, there's a lot of quotes attributed to him, but that's, that's a real one. Yeah. And so that's the challenge that you face. All our knowledge is about the past, but all of the threats that we face, all our decisions are about the future. And so in order to be able to imagine more possibilities and mm. different attack vectors for this audience, you've got to be able to use imagination. And that means being ready to think about the most outlandishly preposterous, ridiculous things, because just because something seems ridiculous now, doesn't mean it won't become reality. And that's one of the things, in fact, when you talk about Xerox Park, I was very fortunate. I got toured around Xerox Park by Bob Metcalf. Oh, I hate you. Oh, Metcalf's law. Metcalf, and Bob Metcalf is, of course, the man, one of the people credited, and probably the, the person credited with the invention of Ethernet. Yes, yes, yes. At the yes, time. Yes. But anyway, that's by the by, that was just a small humble brag on my part on the way through. <laughs> 
<laughs> What's interesting is when we talk about cyber threat, if we'd said two years ago that AI, you know, easily accessible AI would be a tool that today's threat actor could use, that seemed like a pretty outlandish thing to say at the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't, I mean, the GPT-3 model was available, but you had to be a super nerd to be able to deploy it and write some stuff around it and use what it had to do something useful. And then all of a sudden, chat GPT comes out last, what was it, October or whatever it was last year yeah. in 2022, October 2022. And all of a sudden we sit there and go, oh, I now have this thing that's out Googling Google in a sense, because it's able to tell us stuff. And now we're in the realm of thinking about AI could be the next threat vector mm. through all sorts of different things. Yeah, whether um, whether autonomously or as... Accidentally. Accidentally. I mean, you know, it's Stephen Hawking famously said we should stop doing AI because it'll be the last thing we invent. I don't know if he was the one who actually said that, but it's, it's a common refrain. It's like, it'll be the last tool we invent. Nick Bostrom at the Future Humanity Institute wrote a book called Superintelligence that basically says the same thing, mm. that it'll, it'll either make our lives very easy or decide that we're irrelevant. Well, the relevance, the relevance of the humans is still here, thankfully, at least for as long as this podcast hopefully will continue. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting concept because all of a sudden now we have this, a new toolkit, mm. but new toolkits aren't new in the world of cybersecurity. I mean, one of the other guests on the podcast series, Darren Pauly, talks about, you know, he wished that 10 years ago he'd realised he spoke to the person who discovered the first ransomware as a service that was on the market, that was available to criminals. And it wasn't even called ransomware as a service at the time. That's how far, you know, it was before the curve. And he said he wished he'd known about that then because it would have equipped him better to deal with the now. And I guess that's what we're looking for is the you're looking for what what are the hit we're not looking for the big things because the big things are linear changes typically we're looking for the little things yeah once they're here it's it's too late so what you're Mm. trying to do is it's i mean given that we're still sort of at the tail end we hope of covid what you're trying to do in futures in what we call emerging issues analysis was a, a technique invented by the late graham molitor he basically said if you get caught out by public policy right then you're not paying attention and you don't deserve any sympathy (laughs) <laughs> because you could track over a period from anywhere from 8 to 35 years the emergence of an idea from, you know, a weak signal <laughs> to a trend to a problem to something that governments are legislating against and then we do historical analysis on it. There's basically a six-stage process and it starts at the very far left end of the curve. So we're looking for patient zero before the pandemic starts. The very far left end of the curve, because it's kind of an S-curve on the up, it starts with essentially idea creation. When we were chatting earlier about the, when you were flicking stations on the radio. Yes. I think that's an actually a really interesting story because it's one of those things that in, in cyber, we're so worried about the threat of today hmm. that we often miss that, you know, it's the signal to noise thing. We yes, miss exactly. that little bit of signal that could be really, really important. You know, like you, you said, one of the ways you used to look for emerging trends was to listen to a different radio station every morning on your commute. Like... Just walk us through that and tell us how is that how can we apply that in the real world? Okay, so on my blog, thevoroscope.com, which was a joke name that my, my master students gave me, you know, because my colleague was Captain Foresight, they needed one for me, they called me the Voroscope, and I that was so cool I thought I I bought the domain name, right? And so now I blog there. But I've got there on the blog a scanning retrospective, because when I started at doing this sort of in an organizational context uh, a couple of years after I 
you know, became a futurist, I got hired into Swinburne University as a foresight analyst. So my job was to look 10 to 20 years out at the, at the future education environment to try and see what's coming so we can prepare. So now it's 20, more than 20 years later, I can go back and look back at the stuff that I was talking about 20 odd years ago, and you can actually do a compare and contrast. Now, heading that up is a series of, of scanning heuristics that I used to use. So one is beginner's mind, Shoshin, that's number one. That's the, I call it the Suzuki principle because it comes from Suzuki Roshi, who, who famously wrote, in the mind of the beginner, there are many possibilities, but in the mind of the expert, there are a few. So imagination is one thing, but beginner's mind is another because there is nobody who is an expert on the future. You might be an expert in thinking about the future or, or dealing with ideas about the future, but futurists study ideas. They can't study the future because it doesn't exist. So where did the ideas come from and how do people turn ideas into reality? So emerging issues analysis, you're dialing it way down. The signal to noise ratio is pretty close to zero. So another principle there I call the De Bono principle because De Bono has this thing called provocation where you, you or random input. So listening to a different radio station each day was forcing me to listen to worldviews I wouldn't otherwise listen to and to get input from places I wouldn't otherwise get it. That was part of my daily routine when I used to be able to drive to work. I moved cities and then I was on a train, so it was, it was a different thing. But that was part of the yoga, as if you will, the, the futurist yoga, which is force novelty into your, your information sphere, your information environment. So you used to flick through radio station to radio station each morning, just flick one more station yeah. over the, on the dial? The, the rule was it changes by one. It's either on or off. There's no, you know... Oh, so you didn't even pick the next station. Like if the next station was static, or well, the next thing you went along was static? Well, it, it had to be, you know, actual signal, not, okay. not noise. Not but, but, you know... So you pick the next signal? Frisky Follies of 1902 on, you know, one of the... the classic stations Classic stations. And, and then Triple J. You flicked on and you heard them use some words. I did. So this was back in the days of Will Anderson and, and Spencer. And they were talking about... This was the 2004... Mark Latham election, if you want to call it that, where <laughs> Labor got creamed, actually. But they said, you know, Yo, so young folk, the, you know, the, the pollies are coming to your electorate. What language should they use in order to, to be taken seriously by you? And the two things I remember are, you're talking showbags. So, well, what does that mean? So, well, and then the caller said, well, what's in a showbag? Rubbish. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to clean it up then, obviously. <laughs> and the other one was Dilligaf. Do I look like I give a... Fudge, yep. to quote Chef from South Park. And so Dilligaf was something that you know I never would have heard. Mm. So then of course I moved cities, and within two weeks of moving to a new city, I was driving along you know, with my son, and there's a car in front of me with Dilligaf written on the back. So I've quickly texted my, my foresight colleagues, Dilligaf seen in the wild, and then I saw it two more times, like in quick succession, which is another principle, the Goldfinger principle, which is once is happenstance, Mr. Bond, Twice is coincidence. The third time is enemy action. So that was my heuristic for not being swamped by the information environment and all the signals coming. It was three strikes. Now I'm following it. And that's an interesting concept because in cyber, we often get overwhelmed by threat of the day. Exactly. And that and happens not, quite often. You might not have the luxury of waiting for the third hit. That's right. And that, that's, that, that's one of the challenges is it's not just the fact that the second hit has come or the first hit has come, but also being able to assess its magnitude, mm. which I, I guess when you say it happened three times, that's a magnitude measure yes, in that sense. So you've got to understand magnitude a bit. But that's the challenge, isn't it, in cyber is that 
you need to be able to understand whether the thing that you're seeing is actually a real threat because there are a million threat investigators out in the world. And let's be honest, threat assessments come through hourly with new things, not being able to assess the one that matters or the ones that matter. That's the big challenge here, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a magnitude measure, but there's, in, as part of emerging issues analysis, because there are, there are well-defined phases through which this moves. So you also, so you have a watching brief, basically. The idea, there's the idea, and has this shifted to a different constituency? Like it moves from essentially visionary, uninhibited, you know, so science fiction, authors, you know, mm. artists at the very fringe of society because novelty comes from the edge, not from the centre. Then it moves through elite awareness, then early mass awareness, and then late mass awareness, and then the governments get involved, and then they legislate, and then it's, you know, mm. then it's... And this is almost, if you think about something like a, you know, the everyday device we have today, the mobile phone, yep. right? And if you think even now, the smartphone, mm-hmm. I mean... The first mobile phones, you know, the ones that people really liked were flip phones. And they were really modelled almost on the Star Trek communicator from the 60s. Absolutely. And Can you hear me, Spock? Abs- yes, exactly. And then, but that created a, that was a, a thing that became a trend that grew over time. And then if we think about, you know, c- keeping in the Star Trek world, because professional nerd, that's my world. Yeah. But the tricorder became a smartphone. And the irony was that people then put tricoder apps on their smartphones. I had one. I had one. As we all did, I think. Or many of us would have at the time. Well, I I have an Android phone now that's been stripped of Google. So it's... A quite hardened phone. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. They talk about being politely paranoid. I'm I'm impolitely paranoid. (laughs) If there were three things from your experience that cybersecurity should think about when it looks ahead to emerging threats and... Perhaps, but you know, what do we need to do today to be prepared for the the five year away threat, or mm-hmm. the ten year away threat? Mm-hmm. Are there maybe three things that we can do practically that aren't going to stop us from worrying about today, but will allow us to have an eye on oh, what could happen in the future? Yeah, you warned me you were going to hit me with a question that I couldn't think about. But before we get to that, let me let me fold back to the the flip phone. I mean, there was an idea. There was an image of the future that came from science fiction, the flip phone. So how many of the people growing up watching Star Trek decided that they want to make this a reality? So there was this idea of taking the image, the theoretical idea or the, or the image of the future, and making it into an engineering reality. Same diff with you know, warp drive from Star Trek, if you want to go there. I mean, you know, I come from general relativity, so I can remember sitting down and calculating the components of the energy momentum tensor when the warp drive solution came out. Oh, bugger. You might have to you know, bleep that, but rats... You know, the, the, the energy densities are negative. Now, that makes no physical sense. But there are people who are working, it's almost a cottage industry, on turning that idea into an engineering reality. Hmm. So if we're thinking now about the future of cyber, well, cyber exists in a context. So how is the context within which it exists changing? I would say look out for outlandishly preposterous ideas because... You know, I have a maxim that says that reality eventually becomes indistinguishable from satire. So just what, I mean, look, you know, Bart Simpson, or sorry, The Simpsons, you know, episode from 2000, Bart to the Future, where Lisa becomes president, taking over from, and the writers were thinking, what's the most preposterous person we could (laughs) think of to be the president? Donald Trump. So just because you think something is satirical or preposterous, it doesn't mean it won't become reality. And of course... Biff Tannen from Back to the Future was modelled on Donald Trump. Okay, so so there so just because an idea is is outside of your expertise, so I I, I claim, 
Expertise is, is vitally important. All our experience is based on the past, but all of our threats, all of our defence is about the future. That's the, the dilemma that Blue Team faces. Our knowledge, experience and expertise is based on the past, but the threat landscape is evolving. You know, in complexity theory, they talk about simple landscapes, there's one peak, rugged landscapes, there are many peaks, but they also talk about dancing landscapes. And that's where each actor taking a step alters the landscape. So think about the future threat landscape is new actors, some of them human, some of them AI, with each step they take changing the landscape. So unless you're very nimble, unless you're able to, to adapt your footing in real time, it's going to trip you up and you know, you're going to crash and burn. So imagination, beginner's mind, and think of the threat landscape as ever-changing as a dancing landscape. Awesome. So a final question. This is the one that I haven't warned you about at oh, all. No, okay. this, is the, this is one we're actually asking every guest on the podcast this season. I didn't see that <laughs> <laughs> See that? You're fired. That's it. <laughs> no. <laughs> so the question we're asking... Futures are not the business of prediction. We're in the business of sensing change. If there's no weak signal... I mean, you gave me a weak signal, but there was no data with it. So it's, <laughs> it's a, you, know, you can draw a straight line through a single data point in any direction. I need okay. at least two for a trend line. Okay. So the question we're asking everybody this season on the podcast is, what do you wish you knew 10 years ago? Which is an interesting question to ask someone whose job it is to look for the signal and to kind of imagine the what's next. So is there a, maybe we can flip this around. Is there a signal you missed 10 years ago that's emerging now? Or is there something that you wish you'd known back then that would, would have changed your experience of today? Oh. This is, a, this is a tough one because there's so many. I mean, you know, all you can really do, I mean, futurists in the business of scanning, that's, that's what we do. I mean, mm. you know, it, it's, it's debilitating sometimes because there's just so many signals. So if you've got to apply a filter, the trouble is the filter that keeps you sane is the filter that stops you from seeing the really big changes usually. So, and this is, this is just how we are wired. It's, it's how we can operate mm. in a, you know, a universe that's just sending signals to us all the time. I do think AI, and I do think privacy. Hmm. I mean, you know... So when you say AI, do you mean the, the fact that it's emerged so quickly yes, as, a I consumer, mean, as a consumer accessible force? Yes, yes. I mean, we knew that AI was coming because it's, it's been there. But if you look at the... If you know what an exponential curve looks like, it's very, very flat for a long time. Then it hits the knee. We've now hit the knee. Hmm. So it's now going, you know, bonkers. Yeah. So when that knee was was likely to come because it, it changes like that. Like in the, in the, in the course of six months, you, you know, leaked internal Google documents are talking today about how, you know, we're basically out of the game. Mm. We don't, you know, they can do it for a hundred bucks overnight on a laptop instead of, you know, three months costing 10 million bucks. You know, mm. we're toast. I don't know who the, the engineer was who, who wrote that, but it mm. was, it's, it's now out there. So even Google didn't see this coming and you would expect them to be looking around. Mm. But take it back, I wish I'd paid more attention to privacy much earlier on than I have. Like, you know, I, I caught the privacy bug, you know, hardened, hardened Android phone, you know, very, very paranoid operating system on my laptop, you know, the, the, the things that people take for granted. I wish I'd started earlier and some of those things that are out there now, I wish I could take back, but once they're out there, they're out there. That's been a fascinating talk. Thanks very much, Joe. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
And now it's over to Beck and Mike. Thanks, Anthony. Really excited to be back for another episode of our podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mike Holm. How are you doing today, Mike? Hello, Beck. Great to be here as always. Fantastic. Really excited that we have Joseph on the podcast. He was a really fascinating keynote at the conference earlier in the year and and got us thinking in such a different way. So, you know, quite often cyber is reactive, but it's really good to think about that proactive and planning and strategy side of things and not wait for the bad things to go down, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we all get taught all of these concepts when we do our our training and, and our university degrees, you know, the, the frameworks like identify, protect, detect, respond and recover. And in, in the technical world, you can often sort of get, you know, a little bit sort of bogged down with some of the, the cool things in the detect area because, you know, that, that's fun. But yeah, looking looking forward is, is a lot harder. And we know that uh, some of the things that are happening at the moment with, or have been happening for a while with attacks, some of the threat actors will actually sort of, you know, get into your environment and they'll just, they'll just sort of chill, lie there low for a little bit. Until hang out for a while. Something, yeah, you know, just, just sort of hang. And, and that's not new. I mean, if you look back at one of the worst things back in, oh, geez, years ago now when Target had their FPOS breach, that was you know, a threat actor had been in the environment for like six or nine months or something before anyone realised they were there. So, you know, it's not a new thing, but now, of course, they're, they're using it for new, 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 new ways of sort of wreaking havoc. So what about laying low until they want to disrupt? You know, there might be, there might be something coming up like an election or, you know, there might be some other, other activist activity where someone wants to just, you know, make a little bit of a nuisance of themselves. Yeah, so those sorts of things. much more to... planned and scheduled and a bit of a strategy yeah. rather than just hit and miss, right? Yeah, exactly. And and that's that's where it gets a little bit more tricky. So that's where you've got to you've got to have a few strategic alliances here and there with 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 the government. The government's obviously extremely important because they've got access to information, you know, you know at the five eyes level that, you know, us mere mortals won't have. So that's really important. But there's in, there's international communities as well. And also it's been a part of those communities now for well, we're 30 years old now, so we, we've been a part of them for, for most of that time. <laughs> yeah, and we, we actually helped way before yours and my time here, Beck, but we, we actually helped form the Asia-Pacific community, which which is something OSCERT is still really proud of. So being a part of those communities means that you can talk to others overseas and you can just sort of learn what's coming down the pipeline so that's the more sort of forward looking you know rather than just the here and now and some of those things you know you can just chat to people online but one of the best ways is to actually go and participate in in some of those forums and we've actually got a couple of our analysts going in a couple of months to a first event in the asia pacific region and the idea there obviously is is bring back some value for our our members by talking to international experts and understanding just what's going on now and possibly into the future so there's there's the future angle Well, I also love, you know, we've been saying it for a few years now. Well, there's a lot of things we say, but one of the things we have <laughs> spoken about most recently is, you know, attackers are collaborating. They're sharing their information amongst their community. So we have to be doing the same in our community as well about how we're protecting and what and what we're seeing so that we can actually help protect each other, not just ourselves. 
Exactly. And you can't forget the the here and now. You can't forget the the tactical stuff that we've got to do right now. So it's it's great that some of the areas of cybersecurity are looking at the future, but a lot of us are still dealing with the here and now. And look, OSCERT's been doing that for a long time, as have many other cybersecurity people. You, you look at things like MISP, which comes out of Circle, the Luxembourg team, and that's a fabulous way for sharing that tactical information. We're, we're working very heavily on that ourselves and you know, bringing more and more value to members with that all the time because it's a multi-layered multi approach. You've got to have all of those layers of defence. Just right boxes as an open source, right? Um, I think having source technologies where everyone hasn't got a barrier to entry from a cost perspective is a great start too. Yeah, and that cost thing is the real problem. I mean, you know, in, in the business team, and also you must hear this all the time from our members, money, <laughs> money and time. And what do you do if you're a smaller organisation and you, you don't have a cybersecurity team? Or maybe you've got one cybersecurity person holding up the fort for, for the entire organisation. So what do you do? And one of the things that you know, they teach us, again, they teach us this when we do our training and we do our university degrees, they teach you to do a risk assessment, right? And we all know that it's got to be done, but how many of us have actually risk assessed every third-party supplier that we've got? How many of us have actually looked at every single touch point in the environment and ask that question, you know, where are the threats coming from? You know, what's the probability that that's going to cause a, a drama for us and what's the impact if it does and work through that, that risk assessment. So that's why one of the things we're doing at the moment is it's a trial at the moment. You know what it's like. I'm sure all our listeners are used to us doing trials because we want to get these things right. But we've done a couple already just in some, in some schools at the moment, but we're hoping that eventually Eventually, we'll be able to bring this to particularly our, our small members, risk assessments. So a guided way to actually go through your environment using a scoring system. So it's, it's you know, repeatable. So you can actually measure your progress now and later. And like everything we do, we're happy to teach you that. It's it's not meant to be a, you know, a consultancy sort of thing where we, we, we generate revenue off it. It's really meant to be we teach you how to do this so that you can then risk assess in your environment and get to that point where you are actually preventing and detecting and managing in a cybersecurity program of your own. Well, yes, you can't look forward if you don't know what your current baseline is, right? That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the other option that we've got there as well, I mean, I'm very excited about that risk assessment pilot and uh, and it's progressing really well. So I can see us launching that in the next couple of months for, for any members that are interested. But if people are also wanting to learn general cyber risk, we do have our education course. That's a one-day course done as two half-day sessions on Teams. And that's that's run by the amazing Gary Gaskell, who trains for us. I don't oh, think there's anyone more qualified person. in our industry to be teaching cyber risk. Yep. <laughs> I've known him for a lot longer than I care to admit. I think it's measured in the 20-plus 20, 20 years region now, and he's an amazing person to know. Yeah, so we've got some, like, I guess that's our, our role at Allstead is to find those ways that we can to delve in and find little solutions to help people go along their maturity journey in, in easy, achievable ways. Yeah. And look, if, if 
anyone wants to know what the future holds, I reckon that's what Ossert has done so well in the past and we'll keep doing that in new and inventive ways in the future because we've always known that together is the only way to get from A to B in cybersecurity and I reckon we'll just be able to keep doing that. So there's your future. <laughs> See, we didn't need to get a futurist in. You and I know what we're doing. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like some lotto numbers if anyone's looking for future numbers. Yeah, that'd kind of help. I mean, you know, not for profit, you know, money would be nice. <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm I'm so proud of these ways that we're moving forward. All of our members are always saying, you know, we don't have budget, we don't have a lot of resources. So so finding ways where we can make things accessible that they're not too expensive and 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 help, you know, bring that greater baseline of it of along the way. Here, here. Lovely. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, Mike, and we'll see what next month brings and us. thanks for organising this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the Ossert podcast. Thanks to Joseph and to Beck and Mike. We'll be back next month with the next episode of Season 3 of Share Today, Save Tomorrow with a new guest and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to know more about Ossert, be sure to visit ossert.org.au.